Okay, so we are here back today at the intersection, the intersection between business and art, trying to bring the broadest spectrum of entrepreneurs and creatives all under the same roof. Today, I'm here with Akib Usman. He is a serial entrepreneur, most notably the founder of Lightpong. We used to say the world's first one-dimensional game console, but now we say the world's first connected toy company. I say we because I work for Lightpong. Akib happens to be my boss. We're here in Chicago just a few weeks before Akib moves to New York after he's been here for many years. He has an extensive background in blending the physical and digital worlds together and I'm, and I'm excited to talk to him about his life. Welcome to the Thank Intersection Thank Occupy. you for having me. I appreciate it. This is a nice little surprise and I'm excited to be here. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in Kuwait. Growing up in Kuwait was an awesome experience. I grew up in Kuwait since I was about one year old all the way up to till I was 17, 18 before I came to Chicago for college. So I came to Chicago to study film, but for a very large part of my life in America, for the past 13 years that I've been here, I felt like I didn't really like growing up in Kuwait. But over the past two to three years, I'm thinking, actually, you know, I had a pretty damn good life over there. Uh, my parents uh, worked in Kuwait, like my dad worked at an oil company there. And my mom, she had a beauty salon business. So life was pretty good. It's very, very suburban. It's very quiet. Uh, but growing up around family and like my dad worked from seven to three in the morning and for the rest of the day, he was just hanging out with me. It was kind of a cool experience. My mom had a business, a beauty salon business and being able to sort of grow up in this beauty salon uh, environment was awesome. And it was my first exposure to a business without even realizing it. So being able to see my mom you know, interacting with customers, uh, interacting with her staff, uh, doing accounting in the bedroom, calling people, upselling, adding new products to the product line. So all of these things make a huge difference to you as a child, as you're observing how the world works. So I think growing up in Kuwait was an awesome, awesome experience. And I didn't know it at the time, like I didn't know how to define it, but I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always wanted to be a business person, mostly because I was very inspired by what my mom did. She had a ton of freedom in her work. She had the ability to be creative. She was happy to work whenever like work needed to be done. So overall, it was a pretty positive experience. So my first venture, which is the one that you're asking about, uh, was a party company. So what I did- This was your first business? First business ever. Oh. I, a couple of different things happened. I used, was super into music. I used to play the drums, still kind of play the drums here and there whenever I get a chance. Then I started a podcast like you, but my podcast was called the Bollyhood Podcast, where we <laughs> used to come up, find music from the Asian Indian diaspora and put it in a podcast because at that time it wasn't as mainstream as it is right now. So I'm talking artists like Jay Sean, who you might know, or the guy that did Jalebi Baby, like all these music from around the world that was like Asian inspired, not Asian, like Indian inspired or Desi inspired but was very Western, which is how I felt. Like I felt like as a person, I'm very Desi Indian and I connected those roots, but I'm still like in the West and I live in this community, in this society, and I don't really relate that much to Bollywood music as much. So that was uh, like my foray into creative space and arts and so on and so forth. And so I eventually started DJing as a side hustle party thing. And uh, 
I won one award for DJing as well in Kuwait for like the junior DJ of the year kind of thing. Nice, nice. Um, and that led me to a business endeavor, <laughs> which is pretty much how my entire life has worked, right? So I get interested in something, I start scratching the surface, and one thing leads to another, and now we're trying to figure out how we can make money with it, right? Um, and, and with the first business, basically it was three of us. I was the DJ, one of my friends was the promoter, and one of my other friends was uh, the son of the ambassador to Kuwait. Well, I'm not going to say which country because it gets too specific. But because he was the ambassador's kid, he had diplomatic immunity. And uh, that means that he could uh, get away with a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> so we would throw these parties. It was all underage kids. And we would charge about $60 or 20 dinars per person, per guy that showed up to our parties. And uh, <laughs> uh, we would throw them at like huge empty mansions. So everybody would show up. It would be a really good time. The cops would come to bust our parties. And we would just send our friend with the diplomatic immunity passport out. And it was a red passport. And they would say, all right, have a good day. And we did this consistently. They would like, just leave. They would leave. They had, all right, catch you later. You're, you're a diplomat. Yeah, we figured the hustle out pretty well, like between the three of us. So we were making decent money doing this. We were making about $2,000 per night and like just profit. Uh, and it was a pretty good hustle for a very long time, you know. I'm sure as a yeah. teenager, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good time. Uh, I had a, a lot of great memories. One of the times I've ever seen you so elated and emotional was uh, when you were approved for your O-1 visa, I believe. Yeah. And uh, you immediately like brought together your friends and family and, and you were almost on the verge of crying. And I was like, wow. And uh, you often help other immigrant entrepreneurs with visa related like questions or hurdles and stuff like that. How do you feel about the visa system in the United States? And what do you think could use improvement? All right, let, let me give you sort of a related analogy, something that will help you think about my perspective on this, right? It's like, let's say you uh, go to watch a soccer game. It's relevant right now because the World Cup is on. You are standing in a specific area that no one else is standing in. And when you're standing there, you're the first person to have gotten there. Now, when you're there, you have a beautiful perspective and you feel like you found something new. Uh, and you're like, whoa, this is cool. Then another person comes and stands next to you and you're like, okay, this is another person sharing my view. Cool. Welcome. Now, as more and more people get added to this area, suddenly what you once had that was exclusive to you is no longer yours anymore, right? So to me, that's what America is. Like all these people came through to America and they were a country of immigrants. Everybody got here first. And now as more and more people like me included are being added, people are getting irritated about this. They're like, no, wait, 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 wait. We were here first. This is our space, but it's not actually your space. <laughs> exactly. <You know? laughs> so it's like I get the perspective of like why the immigration laws are super hard. And I also understand uh, why the, the system is built the way it is. I think that immigration is a challenge. It's certainly a very, very stressful experience. Like it builds a lot of uncertainty. You're not sure whether you're going to be able to stay, whether you have to leave. Uh, you're not really at the liberty of being able to do what you truly want to do. Like if I wanted to just stop working tomorrow, I literally can't. 
Mm. Right? If I just want to say, all right, catch you guys later, I, I, have, I can't. I legally cannot, otherwise I have to leave the country, right? Mm. So it, it, in the, the way that the laws are written, it's like, it, it's incentivizing you to uh, contribute to society. It's incentivizing you to add value, to work, to build jobs, uh, to solve problems, which in a way I enjoy, but I don't like the ability to not have Total freedom. freedom. Right, right. Like you can't just go to Montana and live off the farm tomorrow. Right, right, mm, right, right, right. It's not even an option. Whereas for most people, it is an option. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think the system is what it is. And me, I'm an entrepreneur. So I, my job is to figure out how to navigate the system and still get what I want done. But that's not to say that the system is easy. I think uh, working through immigration problems is certainly a full-time job in itself. Like, it takes you half the time of your day to figure out your immigration problems as you have to deal with them and solve them and provide documentation and legal fees and so on and so forth. And it's an expensive endeavor. But if it needs to happen, it needs to happen. And it's just like, is it important to you? If it's important to you, then just do it. So that's why I enjoy the process quite a bit. I like helping people do that. Uh, and I, I think it's worth the, the, it's worth the struggle. And of course, it's not 100%. Like sometimes you miss, sometimes... It works, so it just depends on the circumstance, the situation, uh, but I like helping other entrepreneurs and I just want to be able to add value wherever I can. And if this is one area that I have gained uh, an expertise in, then so be it. So kind of, this is a segue off of what I was going to ask, but since you mentioned it, the job of an entrepreneur, I guess there's a million ways you could define what an entrepreneur does because it entails so much different things depending on who you are and what the situation calls for. But what would you say is the job, quote unquote, of an entrepreneur. Well, isn't entrepreneur the French word for unemployed? Is no, it? No, it's oh. <laughs> I see my job really in two ways, right? So I see it as uh, being sort of all the way in front of the wolf pack, but also all the way in the back of the wolf pack, right? And I, I feel like really what I'm doing on a day to day basis is. I'm up front leading the direction and saying this is where we need to go and making sure that we have a path there. But once I know that we have a path there, then it's to go all the way in the back and make sure everybody in the back is continuing forward, but also picking up the trash along the way and making sure we're not leaving a mess. Uh, and so if you think about it, it's like saying, well, what are we going to do? Well, here's what we're going to do. And now that we know what we're going to do, let why don't you guys everybody in the middle like the entire wolf back in the middle you included continue working in that direction and i'm going to go all the way in the back and just make sure that no one's struggling along or whatever needs to be done is being done so if for example like someone needs to place an order on amazon for the dumbest thing then i have to go and do that right uh where it's it's very much sort of front and back leadership I like that analogy. It's, uh, you said that in one of our blogs, and it stuck with me for a while because it's a, it's a you're in the front, but a lot of people say that as a founder or as a CEO or whatever, you're also doing a lot of the grunt work, and especially at an early stage, you're simultaneously like meeting both of those demands. Right. Right. Uh, before the world of business and startups, you were you you went to college for and pursued a career in film. Yeah. Like big budget film sets in India and all types yeah. of things helped me make sure my cameras didn't look bogus today. <laughs> so uh, what was that experience like? What do you think you, you learned from all that time? Man, it was significant. Uh, I, I think that 
this is a weird comparison, so I'll probably get a little bit of slack for it, but I think that the film industry and the military is very similar. <laughs> um, so what happens in film is you have crews of hundreds of people that get together and have very, very short amount of, short amounts of time to uh, produce something of quality. And these people don't know each other, but the hierarchy of the work that they do is so perfectly created, like the system is so well oiled that people know exactly what they're supposed to do the second they get to the job site on day one of the film. So it's very, very well organized. It's a very well planned machine. And uh, there's a lot of different teams that are all working together. There's a lot of different people within those teams. And you know that, for example, if a prop or let's say someone's holding a pen in a film, when that pen falls, everybody knows who the single person to talk to about that pen is. And I like that. It's very, very systematic and organized and very hierarchical. And everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing, who they're doing it for, and why they're doing it. And it's very, very clear. So that's what you learn from film. You learn how to manage large groups of people. And my role was primarily the assistant director later on in my career. But in the early days, it's like you don't know what to do. You're brand new to the game. You just show up and you're figuring out, like, what do I do? Who do I speak to? So I remember there was this one story. It was one of my first internships ever. I was working for a uh, producer out in India, and I was invited as an intern, and I showed up on my first day, and I said, uh, hi, my name is Akib. Uh, he goes, what should I do today? I'm here as an intern. He goes, he goes uh, why don't you go and stand there? He points like at a random place. And I'm like, okay. So I went and stood in this random place. So then day two comes around. I'm now, they told me to come to a different location, different commercial, different company. I show up there. I said, uh, sir, what do I do? He goes, uh, why don't you go stand over there? So this goes on for multiple days. And by day seven, I'm getting antsy. I'm going to sets. I'm waking up at like 5 a.m. in the morning. I'm just standing around all day. Like, what is my job? What is my role? What's my internship? What am I learning? Nothing. So I talked to him and I said, sir, like you keep asking me to go and stand in these different places every day, but you don't give me anything to do. He goes, what's your name? I'm like, my name's Akit. He goes, listen, Akab. He said, don't you? <laughs> like, okay. He's like, don't you see hundreds of people here working, running, do, trying to do things as fast as they can? I said, yeah, I do see them. He goes, well, don't you think that they need help? And then like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh, he's basically saying just go and figure it out and figure out how to add value. Mm, interesting. Right? He's like, I, I can keep giving you tasks to the end of the day, but you're not here for me. You're here to learn, right? So go and offer your services and figure out how to make yourself useful. Mm. And that sort of thinking, and that sort of thinking has stuck with me through the entirety of my life, right? Just take initiative, talk to people, figure out what their problems are, and then solve them. That's the job. So you've spent a lot of time over the past years building and networking and mingling and talking to people within the tech and startup ecosystem of Chicago. How do you feel about the tech startup ecosystem of Chicago and what are your general 
perspective on how things are and how they could be better? Well, look, here, here, here's what you got to think about, right? When you think about businesses, businesses, especially early stage businesses, all businesses need money to operate. Money is like gas to a startup being a car. So if you want to keep driving the car, then you need more and more gas. So there's money in Chicago. It's the third biggest city in America. There's about 200 plus millionaires here in Chicago. Um, but it's not as freely available as I've heard it is in Silicon Valley or New York or in other places like that, right? So my perspective on this is fairly limited because I've only pretty much spent time in Chicago for my entire career. Um, personally, I feel like in the type of business that I'm in, I've hit the walls and the boundaries of what's possible here, which is why I'm also interested in moving to New York and seeing what I could get there. But um, from my perspective, I think, you know, uh, you go to a bigger place like San Francisco or New York, where there's an influx of startups, an influx of money, things are slightly easier. Um, if you look at the statistics, right, only 0.5% of startups get venture-backed funding, and I'm talking all over America. So the percentage of funding, uh, percentage of companies that get VC money 0. is... 0.5? Like 1 in 200. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So the percentage of companies that get VC backing is very, very small. Uh, but your business has to be right. There's a lot of different things, right? So it's a very hard question to answer. Ultimately, I think that there just needs to be more money in the system in order for more startups to be funded. And I think bigger risks need to be taken, but uh, it's very subjective. There's certain types of businesses that work really well in Chicago. So if you look at B2B SaaS businesses, I mean, those businesses work very well all over America. But if you have a consumer business like I do, it's not as uh, simple. So consumer businesses have less interest, um, you know. Hey, let's fast forward. Let's go to Lightpong. So what is Lightpong and why are we calling it the world's first connected toy company? What is a connected toy? Right. Well, Lightpong is a game system. And you could play a lot of different games all in a single beam of light. And part of what happened with Lightpong is I initially tried to shop this deal to the big toy companies, right? The Hasbro, Mattel, Spin Master, blah, 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 like all these big, big companies. And I got rejected from all of them. And I still believed in the idea enough that I was like, let's just still build it. So we got a bunch of people on social media that really liked the project. We uh, really liked the project internally. And overall, like I saw this as a hit. So continue to work on it and realize that the people that are buying our products or that are pre-ordering Lightpong are millennials and Gen Zs. So I was like, that's an interesting insight because traditionally toys are kids focused. Then I realized like, huh, this is actually quite fascinating that our audience skews older for toys, but people are still buying it. So then I realized like we've got uh, a connected toy. It's an internet connected, so you can add more games to it as you go. And really, uh, it's hackable, so developers can make new games for the audience to play with. There's all these different things, which comes from the connectivity aspect of it. But then, because it's uh, priced a little bit higher, it's mostly millennials and Gen Zs that are buying it, but it's also like got all these additional features that kids traditionally wouldn't be interested in. So I had that sort of thing in the back of my mind. It was fairly fragmented. But then I spoke to uh, Dan Kilchner, who was the inventor of Bop It, 
And I expressed to him what I'd done with Hasbro Technologies, my company. And he goes, oh, let me guess. You got rejected because it was too expensive for the end consumer. And I was like, that's exactly what happened. So then I, I started to realize that industry-wide, what these big companies are looking at is they are looking at products that are around the ideally 50 max, preferably $20 price point, that they can sell to kids under the age of 12 um, at Walmart, Target, uh, and other sort of retailers. Whereas what we're doing is we're saying, no, 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 we're going to make the price point higher. We're going to make the product more valuable by making it connected. And we're going to sell it to an older generation of audience so that uh, this is something for them. So connected toys for millennials and Gen Zs. And our idea now is to continue to add more IP to the product line so we can go out and either build more toys or license more toys that are all connected devices that are around the same price point as Lightpong and see if we can build uh, a following within this audience of Gen Zs and Millennials. So you're creating almost an entirely new category of toys. Correct. More geared towards adults. Correct. So what, what, do, you think, what do you think that entails? Do you think that, I, I mean, this is more prediction kind of stuff, but do you think that this is going to set the stage to attract a bunch of competitors who also create more grown people related kind of toy electronic products or that people are going to make more toys connect to the internet or what do you think we might set the stage for if anything uh i'm not sure i mean uh, ultimately sure. depends on how successful our experiment is and how successful our business is i'm sure competitors are going to pop up directly for like indirectly if we categorically create a space and, and basically prove out that there's an audience for this type of stuff and I think that's cool. I think really, you know, uh, as adults, we don't play that much. We're so focused on work and other endeavors that we forget to just chill and have fun. Where, but play is an important aspect of our lives and it's a very, very uh, natural thing, uh, natural human tendency. So I think the more opportunities to play, the better. And if more competitors are doing this, that'll, that's, that's, that's actually a good thing for us because it means that we're successful. Nice. I like that. So uh, Lightpong is not out yet, but to date, we've raised over 150000 on Kickstarter and closed a venture capital round of around $200,000. And how did you find yourself working to raise all of this money for a pre-revenue product? And what has this journey been like trying to raise all this money to make sure that you can launch something? Um, well, a lot about fundraising is traction. Right. And what I mean by traction is uh, if I come up to you with an idea and I say, hey, can you invest in it? You'd be like, well, what have you done so far? How can you prove that this idea is a good idea? Right. Why should I give you my money? So it's, it's answering the question of why should I give you my money? And being able to use hard data to prove that they should give you your money because of X. Or answering the question of why is this a good investment and being able to answer all of those questions with data about all the things that you've done. So really traction for me is data points and uh, data points that prove that you're onto something. And I think everybody understands that there's risk. Uh, obviously early stage, you're giving away more of the company for a lower valuation in order to get the money into a bank. But as you grow, then the valuation changes and people get worse deals, so on and so forth, right? So the people that take a chance on you very, very early will get the best deal, of course. So the journey has been interesting. They, 
you're, what, you're, what I'm trying to do is say, well, here's what we've done so far. We've got over 50 million views on our social media. We've got all these people, 1,500 people on our Kickstarter backing us to the tune of $150,000. We've got this other investor who's backed us. Uh, this is what we're doing from the manufacturing side. This is what we have from an advisory side. This is what our website looks like. Here's what our debt looks like. And every interaction that you have with the investors is a data point for them. So it's how you present yourself, what you talk about, how you answer questions. They're going to throw you some curveballs, how you get under those. How much are you updating them? So it's kind of a, it's a long, drawn out interview, mm -hmm. but it's not called an interview. But I do feel like from the moment you meet somebody to the point that they invest, it takes about three to four months and you're having multiple interactions at that point and you're being observed. And not only is your business being evaluated, but you're being evaluated. So you have to kind of play that part as well. That's very interesting. I don't think as many people have that perspective and that's something that your experience can bring value to that when it comes to investment for something that maybe isn't out yet or anything in general not only are you trying to create all the traction you can pre-launch but you are building a reputation and being observed throughout a network and an ecosystem of right. investors and anyone connected to them over right. time and trying to make sure you can play that game well right so that as time progresses, they see you as a trustworthy founder. Right. And right. so that's, it's not just one, how do you do the pitch right? It's how do you do the pitch right and then do your work right in between that pitch and the next right. pick and pitch and then the next pitch right and then on and on and on right. until right. something right. goes through. Right, right, right. And like, e even if you have nothing, you have to have something. Mm. You know, it's like, it's not like they're saying, well, you have no revenue, you don't have a product launch, well, what do you do? there's nothing here. You still have something, and you have to be able to clearly articulate what you have. Um, there's, a, there's a saying, I'm probably going to butcher the saying, but it's something along the lines of like, if you have some, you'll get more, but if you have none, you'll get less. People who think they have to have something complete, no, just have something a little bit complete that you can show for something. Right, done, done is better than perfect, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. But it's like constantly evolving, right? Like, for example, behind me, we're looking at the cover page of the pitch deck that I use for investors. And it's deck number 13, version 13. And each version is a major revision. So it's a living document. It's a breathing document. And everything is constantly changing. As you grow more, as you learn more, as you collect more information, you have to sort of update that vision mm -hmm. and change your thinking and change the... Change the comparables, so on and so forth. So it's a constantly living and breathing document that reflects the mind of the business and the mind of the people in the business. Steering a little bit away from work-specific stuff, uh, you tend to err on the side of, of giving people information on a need-to-know basis and having a high respect and boundary for your own privacy. Uh, so, do you think that saying only as much as is needed has helped you in business and how so? Oh, what do you mean? Give me an example. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, nothing specific came to mind when I wrote this question. Uh, well, but how am I supposed to know I do that? <laughs> we didn't know uh, you were planning on moving for a while. Uh -huh. And you hiding that information from us didn't necessarily hurt anything in the process, but it was also like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, it's not that I deliberately hid the information. Right. It's more so that I have a lot of different thoughts going on in my mind. And uh, I don't like to share those thoughts until the decision's been made. So, for example, in this instance that you're describing, if I had said, hey, I'm moving to New York, and then change my decision and say, actually, I'm not moving, then I feel like it reflects on me as a person who's uncertain and doesn't know what they're doing. But if I just wait till I've actually made the decision and it's full and final, and then just say, this is what I'm doing, then everybody can adjust their thinking once. Back. Right, right. So to me, it's important to create stability in the environment around me, even if my um, internal think, stuff is exactly, chaotic. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like that's what's necessary to keep the world around you stable. Because if there's no decision, it's just as good as having, like if, if there's a wishy-washy decision, it's just as good as having no decision. So why waste everybody's mental energy with a wishy-washy decision when you can just make the decision and say, this is what I'm doing, and then go there? So it's not so much as like, I know it comes off as a, oh, I'm giving information on a need-to-know basis, but it's more so like the decision's not made. Like, I'm not 100% sure, then why am I sharing this? Yeah. To wrap this up, uh, you are on the verge of moving. How long have you been in Chicago at this point? 13 years. Wow, 13 years. So uh, why are you deciding to go to New York? What's the opportunity mm. that you see there? And uh, how has your experience in, in Chicago been over these 13 years? I love Chicago. I mean, I've enjoyed being here. It's been a while since I've been here. 13 years is quite a long time to live somewhere. Um, and so to me, like this is starting a new chapter in my life. A couple of things that have motivated me to go there is one, we had we had like a acquisition offer for as you know uh, from a business that wanted to buy our business back in July, and that was a New York company that wanted to make that acquisition. And I was like, this is amazing! Like things just happen in New York. The um, other thing that motivated me was that I visited New York a couple of times. The first couple of times I visited, I was like, I don't like this place. But then as I went each time, it grew on me and I really started to enjoy it. Um, to me, it was just like I wanted to be in a different city. I feel like I've been in Chicago a long time. I know a lot and a lot of people here. I'm grateful for everything the city's done for me. But it's time for change. I want to go to a new environment, meet new people, see where I could continue to build light pong and try to make it bigger. And I feel like you have to go to a bigger market, different place, just go where the opportunity is at. And for now, I see that the opportunity is in potentially New York. And uh, as Barbara Streisand once said, New York is a city of opportunities. If there's any place in the world that you want to come to make your dreams come true, New York is it. So that's how I'm thinking about it. Nice. Do you think people should do that more often? Like, do you think people don't go ex explore somewhere or live somewhere or put themselves out of where they've been doing the same monotonous stuff for, for a long time? Do you think people need to shake up their environment more than they do or is it more of a personal thing? I mean, I think everybody uh, who's successful in my book has extensive travel experience. Mm. Um, you have to kind of go everywhere and go to the ends of the earth to sort of figure out how to make things happen. And I think that travel experience really shapes you and helps you understand the world that you're selling to. 
you meet a lot of people along the way, you have a lot of experiences along the way, you have a lot of fun along the way, but truly it's like you're absorbing uh, information about the world and you're making your horizon broader than just Chicago. Because in Chicago you see like, okay, this is the, this is the market that I'm working with. I can drive from one end of the city to the other in two or three hours. But then you have to say like, okay, well, why I'm selling to the whole world? I'm selling to all of America. Let me just go to all of America and try to understand how these people are thinking and how I'm going to make my inroads there. Or I'm going to sell to the whole world. Well, here's how the whole world works. So you got to have to have that information in order to participate. Of course, you can't travel to every place on the earth, but you need that context to understand how things work. Nice, nice. Well. Thank you so much for being a part of the intersection. Absolutely. Good luck to your trip to New York. Thank you. And uh, if there's anything else you'd like to tell the people with the rest of the time, feel free. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, how can people possibly reach you? And is there anybody from any kind of industry that you'd be excited to connect with? Um, uh, I mean, uh, you're putting me on the spot a little bit. so. Uh, people can reach me on Instagram, just immersive.akib. And then if uh, you think you could help us at Lightbong in any way, reach out. We're always looking to hire cool people. We're looking for uh, software developers, hardware engineers, electrical engineers, uh, web people, advertising people. I mean, we're a growing business. So we have all sorts of needs. So any, anything that people think they can help with, as long as they're excited about the product, will work. Woo. Thanks, cool. buddy. Thank you, buddy. All right.